You are listening to Vida Abundante. We have started a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. Here's Pastor Jonathan Gallardo. Now, so far in this series, we've learned what the word means. And so Pastor Jonathan beautifully explained last week, why does John use the word logos, which in English translates word? Why does he do it? And, and, and Pastor Jonathan explained clearly that John is doing this with an evangelistic purpose. To the Greeks, the word meant something. That word logos meant something to the Greeks. And, and we learned that what it meant to them is that they had this idea that the logos or that the word was the one that put everything in order in the cosmos. That's a big word. We'll get into that in the book of John because John uses it. But the cosmos is basically the universe, including the earth and all of his elements. And so the Greeks had this understanding that the Logos is the one who orders the cosmos. Only here John will say, no, it's more than that. It's God. And that's one aspect of why John uses the word word the word Logos, and then to the Jews, the Jews have this understanding that we read in the Old Testament. God created the earth by what? Speaking. Remember Genesis 1-3, the Lord said, let there be light. That that word said in Hebrew is devar, and and in the Greek it's translated from the Hebrew, and the word is Logos. The, The emphasis here is what we learned last week. John purposely uses this word, the word word, or the word Logos, so that his hearers could hear a gospel message of what this word really is about. So it's an evangelistic introduction, but there's more than just that. It's it's not just simply that he uses this word to describe the Son of God, but it's what he says about the Son that matters. And so he begins, we learned this in the first week, the first thing that that John says, and and I'll read it to you now, in the beginning was the Word. And we learned this already. What does that sound like? Well, it sounds exactly like Genesis 1-1. For any of us that have ever opened up our Bibles, the the first thing that comes to mind when you hear, in the beginning, you want to finish the phrase, God. And even Jewish hearers and those Greek scholars that in this day had some notion of of what the Old Testament says, they're expecting John to say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, except he doesn't. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And so John is introducing Jesus as someone who existed even before the earth was created. It's, It's an astounding statement to make. And so... We learned this aspect already in the first week that the Word, Jesus, the Son of God, was in the beginning. Before the earth was made, Jesus already existed. And how did He exist? Well, that's what the second part, which we studied as well, the Word was with God. And with here is not side by side or next to. So it doesn't mean, for example, if I said, Henry went with Carlos Carlos is the guy that gave the announcements. Henry went with Carlos to the movies. Well, that's two different people making two separate decisions, living two different lives who so happened to go with one another to the movies. That's not what this word with means 
here. We learned this in the introduction to John. With here means same essence, same authority. To, to summarize it, the Father and the Son are in unity, in eternity. When, when before the Son becomes flesh, as, as, as God, the Son and the Father are united. Everything that the Father does, the Son knows about. Everything that the Son does, the Father knows about. There is no, there is no separation with the two. Jesus, the Word, is with God, and that speaks of His unity with God. And then we get to what we haven't discussed. It's almost as if John is letting us know, if, if you haven't got it by then, what I'm trying to do here, well, let me just make it as clear as possible. And he says... The third clause here, the Word was God. The Word is God. It's not just existing before all creation. It's not just with God in unity and in relationship, but the Word itself is part of the Godhead. It is God. And I know this gets confusing, and I'll try my best to use practical examples to explain this today, but this is the shocking statement to a Greek and even a Jewish culture. What do you mean the Word is God? I'm going to ask that you bow your heads with me as we dive into what John means here when he says the Word is God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again because you've brought us and gathered us here. And I pray, Lord, that you would put your words in my mouth to explain this text clearly as you have intended it to be explained. Father, that not just our minds would be open this morning, not just our hearts would be softened through the preaching of your word, but Father, I pray that we would leave here with lives transformed and that through the help of your Holy Spirit, we could say, Jesus is Lord of all, including my life. Father, we thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name we pray and we all say, Amen and amen. This phrase, Jesus is God, is the crucial statement in the book of John. And again, to get the Son wrong, to get this definition wrong of what John is saying about the Son, it's not just to get the rest of the book of John wrong, but it's to get the whole gospel wrong. How we define this little phrase, the word was God, has, I would even dare to say, eternal implications. To have a different view of Jesus would make us non-Christian. To say that Jesus is not God would make us non-Christians. Now, three attacks on this, and this is why we've decided to extend this, is because this is the, the phrase that gets people thinking about throughout church history Many theologians, many scholars, many faithful Christians like you and I have wrestled with this phrase. What does it mean that the word was God? Especially when the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 6 tells us, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, one God. That's the literal translation. So if the word, or, or if God is one, then here we have two persons. Is he still one? Or is he two? And so the first attack on is Jesus God is what I call a grammatical attack. It's basically this. Those in this camp would argue that the proper translation of the word was God from the Greek to the English should not be the word was God, but it should be the word was 
a God. And so we have to wrestle with that this morning. Is that right? And by these people, I mean the Jehovah Witnesses tend to advocate for this. They say our translation from Greek to English is incorrect. And the question is, is it? Now, you don't need to be a Greek grammarian to clearly see that that's not what John is saying. At the end of the day, I will get into some lingo and I hope I don't lose you, but here's the main point that I want you to understand. As we go through these questions about the Son, we have to ask ourselves, when the Holy Spirit inspired John to write this, is this really the type of Jesus that John is describing to us? Is, he, is John really saying the Word was a God? Is he really saying the Word was one of many gods? Is that really what John is saying to us? So even if we don't know the Greek grammar, we still have to wrestle with the context of John. And we have to ask ourselves, is John really pushing for that type of translation? Now, grammatically, that's my job, is to help you that not only is it incorrect to say that the proper translation is a God, but the context of John lets us know that that can't be the proper translation. The second attack on who this Jesus is is a little more subtle. It's a textual critical attack. What I mean by that is people in this view would say, when I read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I don't hear anything about the deity of Jesus. I don't hear anything about Jesus saying he is God or the gospel writers presenting him as God. And so the people under this view read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they understand that the order of the gospels written, Mark was the first, Matthew was the second, Luke was the third, and there are some arguments if Matthew is first or Mark uh, is second or whatever, but no one argues this fact. Without a doubt, clearly throughout history, when you study the manuscripts, you can tell that John was the last to write out of all the gospel writers. So here's what they say. Since John is the last to write, and none of these other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, ever mentioned Jesus as being God, John did this to add to the myth of Jesus. To put it another way, John elevates Jesus from a simply good teacher, moral teacher with beautiful sayings, and he's now elevated him to deity. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that true? And so we'll wrestle with that this morning. And the final attack is a little more subtle, a little more modern, but it's important to note because I'm seeing this more and more in evangelical Christian circles. This view is what I call a distinction attack on the personhood of Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. The people in this view say, Jesus is God. They read John 1.1 and they go, amen and amen and amen. They read Colossians 1.15, which states, he is the visible image, Jesus Christ, the visible image of the invisible God. And they'll say, amen and amen and amen. They read John chapter 1, verse 18, which we'll study later on in this series. And, and they say, amen and amen. Him, Jesus, has made the invisible Father known to us. They read passages in Scripture that say all of Scripture points to Jesus Christ and they go amen amen and amen so what's the distinction here's their argument this is the third attack on Jesus Jesus is God oh but Jesus said love your enemies so their argument is when we read in the Old Testament that God says destroy nations or God's wrath is depicted they say oh 
the Old Testament God isn't really God because Jesus would never do that. Jesus is only love. And so it's a subtle attack on the deity of Jesus because it's making a distinction. The true God is Jesus. The Old Testament God, sometimes it's the right depiction of God, but sometimes it's not. And that's why I say it's a subtle attack because, my friends, again, we have to ask ourselves, is that really what John is saying? Is John, when he's writing this, really saying that Jesus is God? Oh, but this is the real God and God of the Old Testament. Nope, he's, that's a different God. That's the fake God. That's a different version of God. So let's look at the first attack on this very phrase. The word was God. The proper translation in the Greek goes this way, and I, I need to read it to you. Um, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. God was the word. Now, what's missing is the God. Now, again, I need to explain some grammar here, so just bear with me for one second. Under Greek rules, when you're talking about a person, when you're emphasizing a person, normally the Greek has what's called the article, which in English is the word the. This text in Greek does not have the word the. So people say the proper translation, the subject here is the word. And because God doesn't have an actual article, the God, then they say, well, it should be translated a God. And so the debate comes in, is this right or not? So... I don't want to bore you with grammar. If you have more questions on it, I can go through it with you slowly. But two observations on this text that are helpful. One, a scholar by the name of Colwell, it's called Colwell's Rule, noticed that in many passages in the New Testament, including in the book of John, when the main subject or an adjective describing the main subject. So again, for those of you that have no idea what I'm talking about, God is describing the word in this passage. So the subject is the word. God is describing it. Here's what Caldwell noticed in Greek. Often when the phrase God was, the verb is was, and then the word, the subject, when it's presented in this order, the Greek oftentimes gets rid of the dub because it's obvious that it's talking about a definite person. So, again, I don't want to bore you with the grammar because none of us here are grammarians, but the emphasis is a convincing argument in some sense that there is evidence in Scripture where we see this used time and time again. But I don't want to go through that rule because there's a simpler one. Dr. Carson notes the following about this phrase. And again, here's how it goes. The literal translation, in the beginning was the word, you notice the word the, and the word was with God, and God, no the there, was the word. However, John uses the word theos. And this is without a doubt only used in the New Testament to speak about God, God the Father. In other words, never is theos translated in such a way where it could mean a God or many gods. No gospel writer does that. Whenever they use theos, they're talking about the one true God. And, and in a sense, there is, this is the only reason why we can translate 
the word was God instead of a God as the Jehovah Witnesses argue. Now again, that's grammar for you. But let's look at the contents. I don't want you to believe me because of some grammar rules. I don't want you to believe me because of some grammatical observations. We have to ask ourselves and we have to put this theory that the Jehovah Witnesses raised to the test. So let's look at it again. Now we're going to read verse 1 with a Jehovah Witness understanding. Okay, so let's put it to the test. Is it possible that in the beginning, before anything was created, God could have created Jesus? In some ways, logically, you could say, well, yeah, think about this. In the beginning, before the earth was made, somewhere along the time from eternity to Genesis 1-1, somewhere in that space, God created Jesus. Would verse 1 make sense? Yes. However, the word was with God, would not. This is why I use this example in the summary of what we learned so far. But what John is saying about the word being with God, it's not talking about just simply two people who do whatever they want. And this is the problem with saying Jesus was a God. Again, to remind you of the example, there is a difference in saying Jesus, I'm sorry, Henry went with Carlos to the movies and meaning two different peoples that do two different things, that do whatever they want, two different lives, and saying God was, or the Word was with God, or Jesus was, was with God, but here meaning essence. And how do we know this? We know this for this reason. The word was speaks of being and existence. So here, to give you an example without getting into the original language, look at verse 14. The word became flesh is usually what's used when something was made. But in verse 1, it's not Jesus became God in the sense of he was created and then was with God. No, that very phrase was is the emphasis John is making is he existed as God. Same authority in unity. And here's the problem. If we say Jesus was a God of many gods or a God, a creation of God, the problem with it is what we're saying is exactly the opposite of what John is arguing for here when he says the word was with God. If Jesus is a God, that means that Jesus does whatever he wants and the Father has no idea about it. Except, John tells us, I and the Father, he quotes Jesus. And Jesus says, I and the Father are what? One. There is no distinction. Same essence, same authority. Two persons, yes, but in the same authority. So here, let me help you wrestle with this logically. My heart is an organ. It is a part of me. You can't take out my heart, and my heart can't come up here and walk around the auditorium and greet you and say hi to you. You take out my heart, and what happens to me? I die right? My brain, yes, I do have a brain, although sometimes my wife would say I, I lose it, um, but I have a brain. My brain is another organ in my body. 
And yet, it's not separate from my body. In other words, my brain doesn't do things independently from the heart. They are a cohesive unit. Now, they have different roles and functions, which is the same that's true with Jesus and, and, and the Father, but they are one in the Godhead. Just like you can't take out my heart and have it independently function from my body, you can't do the same with the Godhead. This is the point that John is making, and this is why the word can't be a God, because the word is in unity with God. It does not function separately from God. That is an emphatic statement, and yet throughout church history, even areas early on in church history said there was once a time where the Son did not exist. Now here's the point that I'm trying to make to you this morning. If Jesus is not God, we have problems with everything else that happens in the book of John. What was Jesus' primary role here on earth? Was it not to save sinners? Now, the Old Testament tells us that only God can save. So when Jesus says, I have come to save sinners, he's not speaking as a God who has been given authority to save. He's speaking as God, as the only one who can save. Salvation is by no one else except by God alone. And why can Jesus save sinners? Because he is God. Again, friends, if we get this understanding wrong, we got the whole gospel wrong. Salvation is at stake here. If God can create someone to save us, then what makes us think that I can't be a savior? And you can't be a savior. And the person down the street can't be a savior. We're not saviors. There is only one savior because he is God and his name is Jesus Christ. In the beginning, he existed as God. He was in unity with God. And John makes it clear the word is God. That's the grammatical emphasis of this. But now we get into these broader questions. I want to read you a quote here from an author who argues the second attack on Jesus' deity. It's a textual critical attack. It's an attack that says Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not talk about the Son as being divine. They don't present him as divine. This is something that John does. And so what they do is say is they elevate this Jesus, the great teacher... And now he has become divine. So let me read to you some quotes here. This is Bart Ehrman in his book. Bart Ehrman is someone who studied at Princeton Theological Seminary. He's a professor at the University of North Carolina, a very bright man. And here's what he says. As we have just seen, the Gospels are filled with discrepancies, large and small, why are there so many differences among the four Gospels? These books are called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because they were traditionally thought to have been written by Matthew, a disciple who was a tax collector. John, the beloved disciple, mentioned in the fourth Gospel. Mark, the secretary of the disciple Peter, and Luke, the traveling companion of Paul. These traditions can be traced back to about uh, 
to about a century after the books were written, but if Matthew and John were both written by earthly disciples of Jesus, why are they so very different on all sorts of level? Why do they contain so many contradictions? So this is Bart Ehrman in a book he wrote making this statement, and then in an interview with NPR, he emphasizes what the contradictions are. So this was a video podcast done with NPR, and here's what he says. In Mark's gospel, Jesus is not interested in teaching about himself, but when you read John's gospel, that's virtually the only thing Jesus talks about, is who he is, what his identity is, where he came from. Ehrman says this is completely unlike anything that you find in Mark or in Matthew and Luke, and historically it creates all sorts of problems because if the historical Jesus actually went around saying that he was God, it's very hard to believe that Matthew, Mark, and Luke left that part out. And so this view of the divinity of Jesus on his own lips is found only in our latest gospel, the Gospel of John. I want to say this carefully. I love books. I read a lot of them. I love studying theology. But I'm afraid of a church culture that's gotten so accustomed to reading books that they assume everything the author says is true and they never fact check anything with the Bible. My biggest problem with many young preachers of today with all their podcasts, they got a million things to say and they don't even have a year of ministry experience, got a million things to say with, with very little understanding of the actual Bible and podcast after podcast and, and shows after shows with let me teach you how to do ministry, right? And I, I'm not even the senior pastor of a congregation. I've got a big issue with that. And part of it is because most of these guys pick up a book and they just assume that it's true without ever reading their Bibles. If we're going to talk about the Bible, we should start with the Bible. And this is a problem in Christianity because many of us do not read our Bibles. And so we'll read a statement like this and we'll go, oh man, I never thought about that. Is it true? And so we have to fact check this. Now the problem is I don't have time to go through Matthew, Mark, and Luke and show you how Jesus does say he is God. So we'll look at one passage. Since the author here mentions Mark's gospel, well, let's look at Mark's gospel. Go with me to Mark chapter 14, verse 60 through 62. This is Jesus' trial during his uh, crucifixion, I'm sorry. Is it true that Jesus never said he was divine? Now, I want to be fair here to this author. This author wrote this book and made this interview, but has recently detracted from this. His views have changed. He now sees how the rest of the Gospels do talk about Jesus as being God, but his impact on younger guys like myself and preachers worldwide have been impacted. And so while he's detracted from the statement, there are many people that have read these books and heard these podcasts and interviews, and they just believe it, and they teach it, and they preach it. But look at what Mark says. Is this true? Is it true that Jesus never says anywhere else that he is God? Verse, uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 60 to 62. And here's what it says. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son 
of the blessed. And Jesus said, I am. Let's pause there. Where have we heard the phrase, I am? Some of you have taken the Pentateuch class with me here. I am, literally from the Hebrew, is the word Yahweh. It's when Moses asked God in Exodus, chapter 3, if I'm not mistaken, what is your name? What does God answer with? I am who I am. John, Jesus doesn't just say this phrase in John. He says it here in Mark. I am. What? You're saying you're God. Yes, he does say he's God. And again, for those that don't quite get it, then he says the following, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. For those of you who have a study Bible, you'll notice that Jesus here is quoting Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is about the Son of Man coming from the clouds from the ancient of days. That phrase in Daniel, Son of Man and ancient of days, is only ever used to describe who? Surprise, surprise, God. So when these scholars, when these theologians, when these young preachers reading these books read these phrases without fact-checking, without actually opening up their Bible and reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even John, and seeing the cohesiveness of each of the four Gospels presenting the Son of God as God, we've missed the point. No, Mark is not saying that Jesus is not God, that he's just some good teacher. Please, Mark was not some Buddhist. He's not a, a Muslim just emphasizing the great teachings of Jesus. Mark would not have followed Jesus, would have not been willing to die for Jesus if he didn't believe he was God. And no, John isn't advocating for such an interpretation when he says, and the word was God. He's not saying, oh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke never talked about that. It's quite the opposite. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have discussed it, and so will I. Each book presents the divinity of Jesus in a different aspect, but they all do it. And to say, with all honesty and with all due respect, that None of the other Gospels affirm Jesus' deity is just absurd. The question I raise is, have you read the Gospels? Have you read them? Do you know what they say? Jesus doing miracles affirms his divinity. No one else could heal but Jesus Christ. It's an affirmation of who he is. This is an important thing to understand. So when we look at this argument, again, we have to ask ourselves, is this something that John believed when he wrote the word was God? And the answer is no. All of the disciples knew after Jesus had resurrected, it was clear, even Peter who doubted, and Thomas, I'm sorry, Thomas who doubted, and Peter who denied, even they knew once Jesus had resurrected, he's God. Everything he told us came to pass because he is God. And here's the final attack. And then I'll get to some practical things here. The third attack is a distinction attack. Again, to quickly explain this, these authors will say things like, Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. They will say things like, 
quote passages like all scriptures point to Jesus, and then they'll say, therefore, in Joshua chapter 8, when God tells Joshua to go conquer the city of Ai, well, that couldn't have been God. Because in the New Testament, Jesus says, love your enemy. So that was not God. That can't be God. And again, we have to ask ourselves, is this, what, is this really what John believed? Is this really what John is advocating for? Or they'll say things like in 1 Samuel 15, when God tells Saul to go and kill the Amalekites, and then Saul disobeys and God takes away his kingdom and later gives it to David, well, they say, no, that, that can't be God because Jesus is loving. He doesn't destroy. He doesn't judge. He goes to the cross for us. He's loving. He's my little teddy bear that I hug at night, and he helps me sleep so comfortably. And we have to ask ourselves, is that true? So here, let me read to you some statements. Gregory Boyd, Cross Vision is his book. He says this to argue his point. If we believe that Jesus fully reveals what God is really like, we have no choice but to suspect that something else must be going on when God appears to act violently in the Old Testament. Brian Zahn, another author that argues for this type of distinction between Jesus and God, the God of the Old Testament, says, we forget that when we see Christ dead upon the cross, we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemy. Under these views, Jesus is only peacemaker. Jesus is only loving, and therefore, by default, when God speaks in the Old Testament, again, Joshua 8, 1 Samuel 15, when he, he tells the prophets that wrath is coming, that judgment is coming. We studied Hosea prior to, to, to the book of John, and think about all those wrathful warnings that will come to Israel because of their idolatry. These authors say, nope, that's not God, because Jesus would never say that. And again, my biggest worry is we have a generation that's filling their heads with books. And I love books. Again, they're, they're helpful. But if we're not reading the Bible, we're in trouble. We're going to believe the next hottest trend that comes out. We're going to believe the next hot topic about the Son of God or about the Trinity or about God the Father Himself. We're going to believe the next hot trend about the, the Holy Spirit and, and, and all these hot trends that tend to come out amongst Christian circles if we're not reading the Word. We have to ask ourselves, is this really true? Does Jesus really depict a different God? And the answer, of course, is no. Jesus spent far more time talking about hell than he does about heaven. He warns against hell. He warns against the wrath to come. And I don't know what your stance on hell is, but here is Jesus' stance on it. It's eternal punishment, not annihilation. What I mean by that is it's not that when you die, that's it, boom, you're out of the face of the earth and only God's followers will be in eternity with them. No. It's not annihilation. Jesus says, time and time again, there will be gnashing and weeping of teeth for all eternity. It's not the world ends and boom, you die. You don't get to be with God. That's your hell. You cease to exist. No, you will be punished for eternity. And my friends, this should raise our hearts, not just to understand the seriousness of hell, but to understand the seriousness of evangelism. True love says, I don't want people to go to hell. And therefore, I should preach 
about the saving grace of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But hell is real, and real people go there. And this loving God that these authors depict, guess what they leave out? All the passages where Jesus says, people will be in hell if they don't believe in the Son. Now, not only that, here's what these authors do. Oh, it's, they go to hell because they send themselves there. That's a nice philosophical approach. Very cute, actually, but it's far from the truth. People don't send themselves anywhere. That would be repentance. When a criminal goes to jail and says, I voluntarily turn myself in, that's repentance. Chances are that criminal will go in jail, serve his time, but he will come out a very different person. But that's not what we see in our culture. What do we see? People have to get what? Arrested. Why do people have to get arrested? Because when we do bad stuff, we're not going, hey, I did it, I'm guilty. We do the opposite. We try to cover it up. We try to hide it. We do exactly what Adam and Eve did. We try to hide from the sin that we committed. We don't want to confess it. We don't want to say that we did it. If we did, that would be repentance. And if you're not a believer, I pray that this message would help you repent. But that's why Jesus never says in the New Testament when talking about hell, all oh, these people sent themselves there. No, what does he say? You study the word and you'll find that in most of these passages, the phrase goes as follows. They will be thrown into Hades. They will be thrown into the lake of fire. They will be thrown into hell where weeping and gnashing of teeth occur. Why do they have to be thrown in there? Because the sinner in his own state does not think he's wrong. He'll never throw himself. He'll never send himself to hell. He has to be sent there. And in some of these passages, it's Jesus himself who's doing the sending. Again, I can philosophize all I want about Jesus. I can philosophize all I want about God. But my job is to read Scripture and to submit to it, not to try to change it in such a way that fits what I think a loving God should look like and what I think a God of justice should look like. If this doesn't convince you about what Jesus teaches, Revelation leaves no doubt. Revelation presents a Jesus who is wrathful. When he comes on that white horse, my friends, he's not coming to give high fives and handshakes. He's coming to destroy. Revelation 20 speaks of the, the, the sun coming from the clouds on a white horse and he will judge the wicked. That's the Jesus of the Bible. I don't know what Bible these guys are reading, but that Jesus is no different than the God of the Old Testament. The same God who is slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast love, who keeps his promises to the third and fourth and fifth generations. That same God is the same God that Jesus reveals in the New Testament. A God who is loving, a God whose mercies are new every single day. But he's also a God who gives justice when there is injustice. He is a God who will judge the living 
and the dead. We see God's judgment in the Old Testament. We see God's judgment in the New Testament. When John says Jesus is God, he's not making a distinction with Jesus and God the Father. He's doing the opposite. Now let's put this theory to the test. Verse 1 makes it clear. What is John citing? We already described this. He cites the Old Testament. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word is in unity with God. There's no way we can read John 1 and conclude that John is advocating for a different God or a new God or a God who is different from the Old Testament because it's simply not true. And every time we're going to read this in the Gospel of John, every time Jesus says the phrase, I am, time and time again in the Gospel of John, Jesus will say, I am. Guess who he's referring to? He's referring to the God of the Old Testament. He's not making a distinction. He's saying that God, the one you read in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, the one you read in the Psalms, the one you, you read in the, the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, the ones you read in the minor prophets like Jonah and Amos, and, and the list goes on and on. That God is, is me. It's the same God. Same essence. Same authority. Yes, two persons, but they're part of the Godhead. They are one in the same. Now, we've gone through the theological aspect of this, but I don't want you to leave here with head knowledge. I hope that this affirms your trust in the deity, Jesus, but that's simply head knowledge. I mentioned Arius earlier who coined the phrase, there was a time when the sun was not. In response to that, one of the church fathers, Athanasius, wrote a creed. And towards a section in that creed, Here's what he says, and this is of vital importance. Nothing in this Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. Meaning here, they've always existed, and meaning here that not one has more authority than the other. They have the same authority. No one is greater in authority, no one is smaller. They all have the same authority. He goes on to say, in their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. This is exactly what John is saying. In the beginning was the Word, because he's co-eternal with the Father. He's with God because he's co-equal with the Father, because he is God. And here's what he says. He goes on to say, so in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their trinity in their unity and their unity in their trinity. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. John will later explain to us why the Holy Spirit is God in this gospel, but I want to end with this. What we believe about Jesus matters. We cannot just say, let me just ignore that. No, it matters. It deals with salvation. Athanasius is absolutely right. When we get Jesus right, our worship is different. And when we get Jesus right, our view of salvation is different. But here's the point I want to make to you. 
It's not simply enough for you to walk out of these doors today and understand, okay, I get it. Jesus is God. He's not a God. Okay, I get it. All of the gospel writers affirm that he's God, not just John. Okay, I get it. Clearly, the same Jesus of the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament. Okay, I get it. No, that, that, that's not the point here. It's important to understand that. But the question is this, is he your God? Is he your Lord? Because here's the reality of it. When we begin to analyze our lives, sometimes I can treat Jesus as just a God. He's one of many. My bank account is a God. My comfort in this life is a God. My spouse and my children can be a God. My entertainment and my series and, and my Hulu accounts can be a God. And the list goes on and on. The question you and I need to ask, it's not just do we affirm that he is God. Is he my God? Is he my Lord? Is he my Savior? And boy, I pray that we would walk out of here with eyes open and hearts open saying, yes, Jesus is my Lord. He's not just a Lord. He's my Lord. How many of us treat Jesus the same way some of these authors do? I don't have to read about him. He's just a good teacher. He's got good sayings. He's got good moral values. No, my friends, he's more than just a moral teacher. Is he your God? Will you submit your evil desires to that moral God? He's more than just a teacher. Will you submit to the Lord who is God in the Old Testament and God in the New question you and I have to raise is not simply do I theologically understand Jesus is God we need to ask the question is he my God is he my Savior I'm gonna ask that you stand with me this morning and let's pray together Father, I pray that this morning you help us. Help us understand to see that you are God. But Father, as we've gone through the theological implications of this, I pray that what would sharpen our hearts this morning is on a personal level. That we would walk out of here saying, you are our Lord. You are our Savior. Father, I pray that as we learn more about you in the book of John, that our worship would change, that we would exalt you even more, that we would begin to sing as we sung this morning, all praise to him, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, three in one, that, that we would sing with all of our hearts to you, Father, that you would help us to see that you are not just God, but that you are our God. That we can run to you. That we can go to you. Not just for salvation, but in times of uncertainty and doubt and worry, because you are our God. In 
your name, Jesus, we pray. And we all say amen and amen. Join us next week. We're going to be going through the book of John. So read chat verses 3 and on because we're going to be going through it. So God bless you guys and hope to see some of you in the, in the lounge back there uh, right now at the end.